0: If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2 again, Acts chapter 2, you can get sort of settled there in Acts chapter 2, and then I'm going to be asking you to spend some time, we're going to turn over to Joel chapter 2 in a few moments. Again, we're continuing continuing to look at Christ and this threefold off of prophet, uh, prophet, priest, and king. And we've been spending a lot of time developing this role of prophet. I was sort of looking back through my notes and considering everything that we've been dealing with over the past several months. And, and this is really an expansive topic. The, 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 the role of a prophet in the Old Testament, how Christ fulfills that role, and then the handing over of that role to the church. is just a, It's a vast uh, sum of biblical data, biblical information to take in, and, and lots of applications that sort of fall in line with it. And so we're going to be looking at even some more specific applications for the church today and the role that we have uh, as, can, as taking the baton of prophecy and being prophetic in the church today. But I just wanted to just mention this. We have no, by no way, shape, or form exhausted the depth of this topic. This is something that we will continue and can continue to learn about and grow in um, over, over our entire lives as God's people. And so, uh, while we're going to be finally, Lord willing, coming to an end of our look at that role of prophet, and of course that will leave us with two more, priest and king, um, I just wanted to again mention that there's just so much more that we can learn here. Before we go any further, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Father, uh, Lord, there are many Many ways, many books out there in this world that seek to provide truth, that seek to provide guidance. And Father, we know that the world in which we live, there are many who would say they are your followers who quickly go and seek guidance from other things. They seek uh, to find guidance through that which is more acceptable in the world today. And Father, they find the truth of your word offensive, and so they turn away. But Lord, we thank you that you, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, have revealed to us that there truly is no place else to go but to your word, for in it are the words of life. Because your word shows us who your son is, your word describes and, and shows the glories of Christ. And he is truth itself incarnate. So, Father, as we continue to look at your word this evening as we continue to focus on this prophetic role and particularly as we begin to understand what it means for us to take up that prophetic role today may you guide and direct us with your spirit may we seek to be conformed more into the image of your son we pray this in christ's name pleading his blood amen so we are talking about the church the church's prophetic role And we've been talking about how God enables the church to fulfill the role that Christ himself fulfilled while he was here on earth. And so just to quickly, very quickly recap what we've looked at. We've looked at the first reality is that by faith we are united to Christ. And in our union with Christ by faith we have all the glories and all the riches that Christ has. But we also have given to us the responsibilities. And and the role that Christ played as prophet is now passed on to the church. Well, how does that happen? How is it possible for the church to fulfill a role that Christ himself fulfills perfectly? And of course, we recognize we're not going to do it perfectly. We're not going to do it to the extent that Christ did. However, we have been given to us the very thing that enabled Christ's prophetic role, and that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And that's sort of what we've been building upon and looking at for the past several months is the role of the Holy Spirit. In enabling the church to fulfill the role of prophet. And so we spent some time talking uh, about what happened here at in Acts chapter 2, in this event known as Pentecost. And so we spent some time, we've read through Acts chapter 2 a couple times, and we're not going to spend the time to read through it tonight because we're going to look at all of Joel 2 later on. But one of the things that we saw here is not only has Christ's prophecy that the Spirit would come upon his disciples. Not only is that prophecy fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, but particularly Peter is focusing on how this prophecy fulfills Joel's prophecy. In fact, we see this if you look in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But Peter standing with the eleven, so just the quick the quick background here. The Spirit rushes upon the apostles. They see, flame, they see tongues like flaming tongues above their heads. They begin speaking in foreign tongues that were unknown to them. And so Peter stands up and he seeks to explain what's happening here. And he says, "...but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "...men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, give ear to my words." For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so what we see here is Pentecost is fulfilling prophecy. Not only Christ's prophecy, but it is the continued fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Peter is quoting from Joel 2 directly. And he directly links what Joel speaks of in Joel two to the fulfillment, to its fulfillment in what is being seen here at Pentecost. So, what we can do is we can say, okay, there's the fulfillment here, and there's the and there's the prophecy in Joel two. So Joel's message and Peter's message are the same. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Joel chapter two. If you were listening earlier, you would already had your finger there, and so it would be a quick. Quick turn for you if you weren 't listening you 're going to have to flip through flip through your your pages and find joel chapter two it 's page thirteen thirteen in my Bible, but my Bible 's probably not numbered the same way as your Bible now Joel is speaking particularly of judgment upon god 's people because of their continued idolatry, because of their continued turning away from him and Joel specifically speaks about how there will be a locust invasion. And this locust invasion is going to be a literal locust invasion that's going to come upon the nation, but it also is symbolic for other invasions that God will bring upon his people. And so we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter of Joel chapter 2, and then we're going to make some connections between what Joel is doing and what Peter is doing. Joel chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Now, just just a quick note. All right, if if you notice the response of the crowds after Peter finishes his his um, his sermon, they are cut to the heart. They are concerned. They're scared, and likely one of the reasons as Peter is connecting what Joel said to what's happening here. This coming of the Spirit upon the church, this incredible uh, event that's happening, it is the sounding of an alarm. It is a call for God's people to wake up. And notice what it says in the rest of verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. Now what is this day of the Lord going to be like? Now, just again to quickly note, the day of the Lord is a vast subject in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, We could spend weeks hashing out everything that's involved in the day of the Lord. Um, And it includes both grace and judgment. So the day of the Lord, and what Peter is going to point out, is that that day of the Lord has commenced... It looks forward to future judgment, but there is a great hope of complete salvation in what God is doing. There's this great, vast idea of the day of the Lord. But it is also a day that is supposed to strike fear in God's people because of their rebellion. And look at verse 2. The day of the Lord, as Joel is describing this particular aspect of the day of the Lord, So that's another thing we have to keep in mind. There are different aspects of the day of the Lord that Joel is going to describe. Some are going to be very, very frightening. Some, as we're going to see later on in this passage, are very hopeful. So the day of the Lord, as it's described, it's not like the whole thing is a day of darkness and gloom. But rather, the particular viewpoint or attribute of the day of the Lord that Joel is discussing, he's, you'll see that back and forth here in the passage. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale like warriors. They charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run up the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth Quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So, this first section we see here we see the, an army arrayed in battle against God's people. And they are described the same way that locusts would come through and destroy an area, destroy uh, farmland. And, and there, there's descriptions here. They talk about how thunderous and how loud their sound is. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen or, or watched a, a, a nature show on locust swarms in the Middle East. It is... Absolutely terrifying. The sound of all of millions upon millions of wings beating together is deafening. Talks about how the sun and the moon will be darkened. And if you see these huge swarms moving together as they come into an area, there's so many of them. It does literally blunt the, the stars, it blunts the the, um, the light from the sun. And so God is saying a true locust invasion is going to come upon Israel, but that is only representative of a nation that's going to come and bring judgment upon, upon his people. And so it is a, he ends up there, at verse 11, it is a great and very awesome day. Who can endure it? And the response, when you hear what's said here, the, answer, the, the rhetorical question, the answer is no one. No one can endure the great and awesome day of the Lord. Yet... Look at verse 12. God provides grace. Oh, sorry, I don't know why that... Oh, that's all right. sorry. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. And make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? So again, Peter is drawing and saying this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Immediately, the crowds, the Jewish crowds, would have gone to Joel too, because Peter points them there. And it's terrifying. But yet Joel also provides hope for those who truly repent and turn back to the Lord. I love the phrase there, rend your hearts and not your garments. There was a commonplace action that would happen when someone would mourn or regret a situation, they would rip their garments open. And it was meant to portray their absolute and complete object or abject um, desire to turn from the course that they've gone on. But it was very easy to rend an outer garment but for one's heart to remain cold to the things of the Lord. In fact, if we even think back to the trial of Christ before the high priests, Jesus says that they will see him returning in power. He actually speaks of the day of the Lord. And the high priests rend their garments. Say, we don't need any more proof that this man is a blasphemer. What a a juxtaposition of rended garments on cold, stone-cold, hard hearts. And so Joel goes on in verse 18, The Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you, having lived in the south for a while. This is a favorite, favorite verse of southerners. I will remove the northerner far from you. Anyways. And drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. To shame. It's a great restoration that God speaks of. And He speaks of it in agricultural terms because locusts would decimate crops. They would take away grain. They would, and particularly for Israel as an agrarian society, if their crops were destroyed, it would crumble their entire existence. And so God is saying, As I sent these locusts upon you in judgment, so I will restore you to an even better place as I bring mercy and grace to you. And particularly that focus that the people that are his will never be put to shame is a great hope. And then look at verse 28. And this is particularly what Peter focuses on as he quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall what? Prophesy. Now, there's the key focus. The prophetic office is now not reserved to one particular person that was the prophet set apart by the Lord, but now that prophetic office is given to who? Sons and daughters. The concept being that it is now the responsibility of all of God's people to be involved in this prophetic office. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. The idea here is that there is a complete and total from every race and every station in life the Spirit is being poured out upon God's people so that a king and a servant have the same level of God's Spirit. That's the idea. And he says in verse 30, And I will show wonders in heaven and on the earth Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. The moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And here's a glorious hope. And it shall come to pass that who? Who? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved for in mount zion and in jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the lord has said and among the survivors shall be those whom the lord calls so a glorious passage a passage of of absolute terrifying truths but glorious hope in the grace of god and so as we are here in acts chapter 2 peter is saying this is it this is the fulfillment of those things and he particularly points to the sun being, uh, the, the Spirit being poured out, the wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below. And so Joel and Peter's message is the same. In fact, if we were to look through, and, and we're going to do that, look at, at this message that Peter gives, it's the same thing that Joel is saying. God's people stand condemned for their rejection of God. We saw that in Joel 2.1. We see it here in Acts 2.23. He says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says it in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom, who crucified? You crucified. Remember we talked about the role of the prophet to stand as a divine prophet district attorney, an accuser. And Joel is doing that in Joel chapter 2, and Peter is doing that here. But God is not a God who only provides condemnation. He is a God who is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. And so God, in grace and mercy, calls on His people to what? Repent. We saw that in Joel 2, 12-13. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It's interesting that Peter makes this statement. He finishes this sermon. There is no altar call. There's no bow your head and close your eyes moment. There's no you know, walk the aisle moment here. He just finishes the sermon. And the response of the people is, what shall we do? They are so cut to the quick By the Spirit of God that they they want to know. Like if we were to look at this from our modern day standards, we would say to Peter, you missed out on the application part, Peter. And the Spirit is the one who probes deep into these crowds' hearts. And so what is Peter's response? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God is a God of grace and mercy and loving kindness. He is a God who overflows in abounding in those things. But He only provides that grace and that mercy and that loving kindness to people who repent and believe. And there's a wonderful promise for those who repent. Their promised blessing. We see it here in verses 17 through 20. That the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. That He'll do signs and wonders. And it shall come to pass, we see particularly in verse 21, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. What a wonderful hope. The hope is that at this time anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, remember what's happening here at Pentecost. All right? Jerusalem is a primarily Jewish area, but there were travelers from all over the world that were there. And particularly the gift of tongues that comes down, they're speaking in human languages that other people recognize. And in fact, the list is given there, In Acts chapter 2, it says that we have people that were coming from um, the Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia. uh, um, That word I can't... yeah, Pamphylia. I don't know why I can't get that one out. Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. I mean, it is a truly worldwide, diverse group of people that are there. And so the message that Peter says when he says that the Spirit is going to be poured out and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, it is an overflow, it is a, the floodgates of the Spirit being opened so that now it's not just focused on one nation, people who genealogically trace their lineage back to Abraham, but to the entire world, to all of Adam's sons and daughters. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, in Christ there is no more Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is not even male or female, but we are all made one in Christ Jesus. So, Peter is taking up the same message that Christ took up. He proclaimed after the Spirit came upon them. What, did you, what was the first, the first word of the gospel is? Repent. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus began after receiving the Spirit, after being tempted, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I think it's also important to note here, there's crazy stuff going on at Pentecost, right? Crazy stuff. Rushing winds you know, tongues of fire above people's heads. Crazy stuff. What does Peter point the people to? Not the crazy stuff, not the miraculous, but to his words. Look in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my what? Words. We see it in verse 22, where he again emphasizes, men of Israel, hear these, what? Words. Verses 40 through 41, he says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his, what? His word were baptized, and they were added that day about three thousand souls it didn't say those who received his gifts but received the word the the gifts are given and just not to beat a dead horse what we talked about the last time we were together but the gifts were given to authenticate the word the focus is always on the word the message of salvation it's also something else who is who is peter talking about in this sermon He's talking about Jesus Christ. He's pointing them to promises made to David that are now fulfilled in Christ. Why is that? Why is Peter's sermon Christ-centered? Because the Spirit is sent to speak of who? Christ. Jesus says this, John 16, He will glorify me. For we take what is mine and declare it to you. And so, what we see happening is the crowd receives the word and then the spirit. And there's a very important connection here. Verse 38 Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ and for the forgiveness of sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important. Right? This gift of the Holy Spirit, he's not talking about gifts. From the Holy Spirit. Now that is a separate reality that comes by God's grace. But rather, He's pointing them back to Joel's prophecy. When Joel said that he will pour out his Spirit on who? Everyone. Rich, poor, powerful, servants. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, they receive the Spirit of God. Now, why is that important? Because who is responsible for continuing the prophetic work that God has given to His people? Now it's not one person, it's everyone. The whole church is given the Spirit in the same way that Jesus Christ is given the Spirit to take up the prophetic role. Now, there's a result of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we see this in verse 42. What happened when they received the Spirit? Well, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching, to the fellowship that they have with each other, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. The direct result of the gift of the Holy Spirit is devotion to God's Word and devotion to God's people. I think this is important to keep in mind here, right? Devotion to God's word will bring about devotion to God's people. They are inseparably inseparably interconnected so that you cannot devote yourself to the word without devoting yourself to God's people. There are people who will say, well, I'll just study the Bible for myself. I'll just sort of be a Christian out on my own. That is not what is happening here in Acts chapter 2. They devote themselves to the Word, but then they also devote themselves to fellowshipping with each other, to breaking bread together and to praying together. Which brings us then now to the final point. We've been looking at how God enables the church to do this. Union with Christ enables us to have this prophetic role today. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we've seen now at Pentecost and hash that out. So now, what do we do? Well, there is the ministry of the Word among God's people. The ministry of the Word among God's people. And so we're going to look at three particular areas in which the Word and the ministry of the Word Allows us to fulfill the prophetic role that we've been given, that the church has been given from God. Particularly, we're going to look at the ministry of the word in worship, the ministry of the word in witness, and the ministry of the word among God's people or among the congregation. So, first, we've got 15 minutes to do it. So, strap in, we're going to move fast. We see, first of all, that the church's prophetic role is seen in her word-centered worship. Now, this is so important. So much of what passes for worship today is not centered upon the word. Where is it centered? On me. We approach, I think, worship sometimes even unconsciously this way. You know, we'll come in and And, you know, I liked the service today. Well, if you really think about that question, who cares if you liked the service today or not? I mean, that really is not the right question. The question that should be is, was Christ honored and was he glorified and was his word proclaimed? And so this word-centeredness in worship is paramount to true worship among God's people. And unfortunately, much of what is popular, much of what has thousands of people following it today in the, in, in the church is not word-centered. It's people-centered. And the scriptures warned us about this. You know, there'll be preachers, there'll be people who will rise up and they will have, they will amount or amass themselves teachers with itching ears, saying the smooth things, the things that, that make them feel good about themselves. Well, how does this worship work its way out? Well, it first works its way out through word-centered singing. Now, this is important because even in many churches, I think, that want to focus on the word in their preaching, so often they sort of throw that out the window in they're singing. Right? Our singing must be word-centered. This is actually something that was a requirement in the Old Testament. If we look at 1 Chronicles 25, 3, this is really interesting. So 1 Chronicles 25, God is giving instructions to Israel on how they are to um, how they're to set apart those that are involved in worship. And he says, he's talking about these people that are being set apart for worship at the temple. It talks about O Jedithin, the sons of Jedathan, Gedaliah, Ziri, Jeshuiah, Shimei, Hashabiah, and Mattahiah. Those Hebrew word names are just lots of fun. All right? Six, under the direction of their father, Jedathan. And what did they do? They, they didn't play instruments before the Lord. They didn't, they didn't worship before the Lord. What did they do? They prophesied. With what? The lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Right, so even the Old Testament, even at the temple, at the tabernacle, there was a role that was focused in worship, musical worship, that was prophetic. There was a prophetic role being done there. So Old Testament required that. That's what it was. Should it be any different for us in the New Testament? And the answer is no. In fact, we see that interesting here, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 19. And and what we see is Paul, in one breath, is talking about drunkenness, and in the next breath, he's talking about worship. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think those two things, those subjects go together really well, all right? Drunkenness and worship. But actually, when you look at what Paul is saying, it's clear. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. All right? But instead, what do we... So if you, so, to be drunk with wine, what do you have to be filled with? Wine. All right? And so essentially you're drinking wine, you're getting it so that the inebriating effects of the alcohol will get you to a point where you are no longer in control of your faculties, you are drunk. It is controlling you. So instead of filling our lives with wine, what should we fill our lives with? The Spirit. Now what, now what, how does a drunk person act? Right? Are they, is it nice to be around drunk people? No. They're obnoxious, they're self-centered. They're, you, you can have them the whole range of emotions, from angry drunks to happy drunks to the whole nine yards. But it's not a fun experience to be around someone who's drunk. But what is it like to be around someone who's filled with the spirit? And that's what, what, what comes out. ...of someone who's filled with the Spirit. Worship! We address, and this is what's interesting... ...we address one another. That there is... what We often think of worship as a vertical focus. We're worshiping God and lifting praise to Him. And that certainly is true. But Paul is saying, guess who else you're talking to? Each other. You're addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs... You're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And so as part of that prophetic role that we have, we speak the truth to each other as we worship. Paul also mentions this in Colossians chapter 3. And here he's even more word-centered. What is it that's supposed to dwell in us richly? The Word. And then what does that effect of the Word dwelling in us richly? And I couldn't... There's a sermon in that very easily. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Boy, we really could use to advance in that command, right? Letting the Spirit use the Word to saturate our hearts. So that we can then teach and admonish one another... In all wisdom. That teaching and admonishing, those are prophetic roles. Showing and pointing people to the truth and then calling them to live in light of that truth. Well, how are we doing that? Well, we're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You realize that it's so easy for us to come in on a a Sunday and worship and sing the songs and just sort of go through the motions, and that is not worship. Worship is thinking about what we're singing, listening to other people sing. You know, I would encourage you. I, I do this occasionally here. I will not sing during worship for a time. All right, don't just, like, not do it all, because if everybody's in here not singing, then it's going to be awkward, all right? But, but for a time, just listen to people singing, and then, and then focus on the words of what's being sung. And here's the other thing, all right? The Scriptures tell us to make a joyful what? Noise. All right? So if the person next to you is singing a little off key, if it doesn't seem to go with the music, you know what? You can still find God's grace working through that if you focus on what they're singing, even if it is off key. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to do things off, things skillfully under the Lord. Understand that. But the command is everyone should be singing in worship, and everyone should be listening during worship. It's a responsibility of word-centered worship to sing. But then, there's also a responsibility for word-centered preaching. So yes, word-centered singing is important, but there's also a role for the public proclamation of God's word. Singing alone is not all that the church does to fulfill this prophetic role. There's actually two purposes of prophecy throughout the scripture. 2 Timothy three sixteen. All, right? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. And then, what is that teaching supposed to do? That doctrine is supposed to reprove and correct and to train us in righteousness that we may be fully completed, perfect for what God has called us to do. But that happens primarily through The public proclamation of God's word. Now, there are people who would come in and they would say, you know what, you come into Bible Baptist on a Sunday morning, that's not how they did it in the first century. And there's probably some fair critiques about that. So, first of all, they didn't come to a building. They went into people's homes. They didn't have hard, brand-new chairs to sit on. They sat on the floor. But we actually know from orders of worship that we've seen that the actual... Acts, what's going on in worship is not that much different. Maybe the orders are different, but, and they also would probably stay a lot longer than an hour. Um, but the primary focus of that worship was the proclamation of the word. We see it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. God gives apostles and prophets and evangelists, and then we have the shepherds and teachers. And what are the shepherds and teachers supposed to do? Does he give the shepherds and teachers to do the work of the ministry? Is that what it says? No. Who does the work of the ministry? The saints, which includes the shepherds and, 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 and teachers. But really, the public proclamation of the word is meant to build up the saints or to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they can build up the body of Christ. Now, how does this work? Well, what what does Paul tell pastors? Well, he tells Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, all right? So what is it that doesn't bring shame to a pastor if he rightly handles what? The word of truth. There's an impl- a clear implication in here that he is handling that word before his people, we see it in Acts chapter six, verse four we have the setting aside of the deacons right? and the deacons are being set aside because the apostles are having to deal with complaining people all right we 're not getting our food, these widows are being neglected da, 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 da. and so the apostles are like look we 're busy studying and, and and seeking to get the word done we can't we 're not to be meant to be Serving tables is what he says. So they set aside the first deacons or servants. And then what does it say? What do the apostles, the leaders of the church, do? They devote themselves to what? First of all, to prayer. And then they devote themselves to ministering in what? The word. Word-centeredness. We see it in Timothy. That and Notice that word devote, all right? So the apostles devoting themselves to that. That same command is given to Timothy, a young pastor. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to what? The public reading of Scripture. And then with that public reading of Scripture is to come what? Exhortation and teaching. Don't neglect the gift that you have. There's a giftedness that was given to you by prophecy. When the council of elders laid their hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And, and even as Paul is meeting with the elders in Ephesus for the last time, and it's, it's a beautiful beautiful scene in Acts chapter 20. There's tearful goodbyes. They're not going to see Paul again. What what is it that Paul wants to get across to these elders, these leaders at the church at Ephesus? He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So here's here's my, this is what I did. This is what I modeled for you as an apostle. So what should you do? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And again, as this emphasis is pointed to Timothy, what you've heard from me, Paul giving that example, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, Who will be able to teach others also? So, the word is to be centered in its proclamation, in its exhortation, in its training, in its teaching, in what we do in worship. So, the church's prophetic role is seen in her word centered worship. I only have two more paragraphs that are about this much of a page. So, we're going to push through, all right? We're going to push through and get this done. Secondly, the church's prophetic role then is seen in his, her word-centered witness. The New Testament church has a specific role as witnesses to the world. Now this is brought about by the indwelling work and power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1.8, right? Jesus is ascending into heaven. He says, look, don't start your ministry until you get the Holy Spirit. But you will receive the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then what is to be the result of the Spirit coming upon you? You will be my witnesses. Where? Well, Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then where? The whole world. The Spirit, in one sense, is a massive pebble dropped into the sea of the world, and its ripples... Ripple from Jerusalem out through the entire world. The church is to be those witnesses. They're called to be those witnesses to the end of the earth. This is the one thing. The prophetic witness of the church is not limited to one people group. We should be sharing and witnessing to everyone. Particularly here in America, we were in in a very unique situation where we have people coming from all over the world. So in one sense, we are greatly suited to fulfill this role, this prophetic role, because we don't have to go. They're coming to us. So should we not be witnessing? Should we not be sharing the hope of Christ? Should we not be fulfilling this prophetic role? And in fact, this is a role that will continue until the end of the age. Revelation chapter eleven, three. 3. Notice what is happening here. At the very end of all things, God still has his what? Witnesses. Prophesying for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, there's a lot of what are these witnesses and other? We're not going to get into that. The point is that the prophetic role is still given to the church. So the church's prophetic role is seen in her word-centered witness. And then finally, the church's prophetic role is seen in her word-centered edification. And in fact, we already saw a little bit of this when we looked at the ro- the role of the word in our worship. We're speaking to each other in psalms hymns and spiritual songs. But look at Ephesians chapter 4:13 through 15. Right? That that same passage Paul has said God gave apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers to build up the saints for the work of the ministry. Well, what's the goal there? What, what, What are we aiming for in our ministry? So that we would attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of who? Christ. So the role of apostles, prophets, pastors, and teachers given to the saints, to equip the saints so that they do the work of the ministry, this is what we're aiming for, Christ-likeness. Notice what he says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful kings' schemes, but rather, and then here we go, instead of getting carried away by these doctrines, we speak truth in love, so that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking truth in love. That's the prophetic office. What are your conversations about when you talk to other believers? Is it about inconsequential things, or are you focusing and talking about the truth lovingly to them? So that they wouldn't be carried away by the winds of doctrine, but they would grow up in how many ways? Every way. You understand that the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ does not leave us room to have areas that Christ does not affect. We do this, as Paul says in Ephesians four twenty-nine through 30 not letting corrupting talk come out of our mouths. Boy, isn't that easy, huh? It is so, you know, James wasn't kidding when he said that the tongue is set ablaze of fire from where? Hell. That it damages, and it is so easy with our tongues to cause corruption. And so Paul says, how, how much corrupting talk can we have? How much? How much? None. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So what is the opposite of corrupting talk? Talk that is good for one specific purpose. Building up. Edifying. This is what was happening in Acts chapter 2 when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They would fellowship together. They would eat meals together. They would pray together as they're seeking to build each other up so that they can give grace to those who hear. I mean, think about this. The way that we talk with other believers, our conversations, they are, as to use a sort of older term, they are a means of grace. Not of saving grace, but of equipping grace, of building grace. And we do this as we fulfill the prophetic role given to us by the Holy Spirit. What we talk about, our conversations, should point us to be more like Christ. And so we do that and our speech, speaking good things so that we can give grace to those who hear. Now, and, and here's, again, the important role of the Spirit in all this. If we don't do this, what do we end up doing? We end up grieving the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us so that we can be and fulfill the prophetic role. Now, here's the thing, and I'm not saying that this is going to happen to us, but what happened to Jonah when he grieved the Holy Spirit? He got swallowed by a whale. Now, I'm not saying that whales are going to be popping up out of the rivers around here, but I am saying that God gives us His Spirit for a purpose. So let's not grieve Him. And let's remember that the Spirit is the one who seals us unto the day of redemption. So, the church fulfills this role today. We don't do it perfectly. We're not Christ. But yet, the Scripture tells us that we are His body. He is the head. And so, as we are united to Him by faith, as we have been given the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we now have been given the ministry of the Word. Who are the prophets today? We all are. We're to speak the truth of Christ in love. May we fulfill this role, modeled by Christ, empowered by the Spirit, as we live our lives day by day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, there's much here that we can take and and meditate on and consider. We thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit who is not just our down payment, who does not just seal us until the day of redemption, but, Father, who is poured out onto us so that we would prophesy Not seeking to prophesy of things in the future, but to prophesy by calling men to repent and turn to you. Taking the glorious message that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then to minister to each other, to point each other to this glorious hope as we complete the ministry of the Word. Father, work in our midst through your spirit today. We pray these things in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.